0: This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nathan, and this episode is part of our professor series. Today, we're sitting down with Professor Chloe Martinez, a scholar of South Asian religions and a poet. She's the program coordinator for the Center for Writing and Public Discourse at Claremont McKenna College, as well as lecturer and fellow in Sikh studies in CMC's Department of Religious Studies. She's a graduate of Barnard College, where she was a Mellon Mays Fellow, and received the MA-PhD in Religious Studies from UC Santa Barbara. She's also a graduate of Boston University's Creative Writing MA and the MFA for Writers at Warren Wilson College, where she was a Holden Scholar. The author of the chapbook, Corner Shrine, and the collection, Ten Thousand Cells, her poems have appeared in The Common, Waxwing, Prairie Schooner, and elsewhere and have been five times nominated for a Pushcart Prize, as well as for Best New Poets and Best of the Net. Thank you for joining us, Professor Martinez.
1: Thank you, Nathan. So good to talk to you. I'm happy to be here.
0: I'd like to start by asking if you could describe a time of significant change and inflection point in your personal life, professional life, or both.
1: Well, one that comes to mind, which is sort of all those things would be moving to Claremont um, because I'd been traveling around. uh, My family had been living in a bunch of different cities. And when we came back to Claremont, um, I kind of fell in love with California, which I had gone to grad school in Santa Barbara and mostly spent that time missing New York City where I had gone to college. When we came back to Claremont, I suddenly like got Southern California. I really loved the weather and the plants and LA, which is so diverse and, and cool.
0: What would you say the biggest thing to adjust from moving from um, New York City to the Claremont area would be?
1: Well, I moved from New York to Santa Barbara and I felt very like cut off from big cities and cut off from diverse communities in Santa Barbara, but I don't feel that way about Claremont. We're much closer to LA. You know, life at the colleges is so vibrant. There's lots more going on um, in the arts. When I lived in Santa Barbara, I felt very out of place because I was this grad student like trudging to the library and my I was a TA so my students were surfing and partying and having the time of their lives and it felt very disjunctive to me whereas in New York I felt like I was in the middle of things
0: so I'd like to ask a few questions about your poetry work um so just to start Uh, What was your initial experience with poetry like, and more so, how were you exposed to it?
1: Well, you know, I don't remember the first first poem I came across or the beginning of poetry in my life. Definitely, I was reading poetry as a kid. My dad used to recite poetry for fun. He had lots of poems memorized, so they were just around, and I heard them. I was also a kid who learned to read very young, and so... I kind of experienced a lot of what I read as a little kid reading. I didn't always understand the meaning of what I was reading. I was reading like chapter books in kindergarten. So I often missed a lot of the plot, missed a lot of the significance of what was going on. But I was really interested in what was going on with the language. I was hearing music and sounds and wordplay. Um, So I think in a way, even my non-poetry reading, I was experiencing it the way I now experience poetry through music and linguistic supplies, maybe even before meaning.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting um, way to put that because, in a way, it's um, like poetry, it's a very musical form of writing. And um, at a young age when you can't fully comprehend everything that you're reading, it's almost like you're reading some form of poetry. Because it's like you can only see the structure, the musicality, the rhythm of what you're seeing instead of maybe the actual words and the meaning behind them.
1: Exactly. When you're a little kid, when you're a young reader, you're missing a lot, but that's actually a great gift because as we grow up, we really learn to be focused on on meaning, focused on what we're supposed to get out of a text, right? And it often is difficult for us to attend to musicality and sound and surprise and strangeness, which those are the things that that poetry is all about so yeah one of my earliest reading experiences um that i remember i have a very early memory of reading um the phantom tollbooth i don't know if you've ever read that book but it's a you know it's a book that is for kids but it's all about wordplay and puns and double meanings and i didn't understand any of that but i loved that book because it was full of good sounds
0: and just to go off that um do you think that in some way what we can experience from poems doesn't just have to be the meaning behind it? Can it be more so just the enjoyment you get from actually reading it um, and what was mentioned before, the musicality of it?
1: Absolutely, and I often try to, you know, I, I try to convey this in my classes that people are are sometimes scared away from poetry because they read it and say, I don't understand this, I don't know what it's about. And then they think, well, maybe I shouldn't be reading it. I'd better go read something else, right? It's, uh, we are often conditioned to think that something we don't understand should intimidate us and that we need some kind of credentials to read it, right? And I actually think the way to read poetry is first without too much concern for the meaning or concern for understanding it or unpacking it or mastering it right? To learn to read poetry well is to really first experience it as sound, experience it as music, experience it for pleasure, and then let those meanings kind of creep up on us. I think that's a thing that poetry can actually, the poetry does when it's successful, and then also poetry can teach us to do in the world, to think in ways about language that are not restricted to this kind of like, how do we extract meaning? How do we extract knowledge, right? But that language works on us in many ways, and it works on us through rhythm, through pattern and variation, through music, um, through all kinds of sonic techniques. And language does this in poetry and outside of poetry, but poetry is a place where that is really foregrounded. And when we learn to read poems, when we spend more time with poetry, I think we learn to sort of fine tune that part of our ear and maybe also get over our discomfort with not knowing and be okay with saying, hey, I'm gonna read this, I like it, I don't know what it means, I'm okay with that. Maybe I'll figure out what it means a little later.
0: For sure. And for people who don't have much experience with poetry or perhaps are um, a little afraid of the format, um, just off the top of your head, is there anything, any um, specific poem or author that you would recommend as like um, a way to start to get into
1: poetry? That's a great question. who to recommend because i think it's so different for every person um i mean i think actually i think william blake is a great example of someone who is not a modern poet but his poems are weirdly accessible they're kind of they they remind us of nursery rhymes and so in a way if you read them you might think well is this children's poetry or isn't it but they are full of really complex meanings religious arguments um and a terrific, terrific poetry. I think Blake is always a great place to start. Um, Among modern poets, I would say Ross Gay is a poet that I have turned to a lot recently um, as someone who has written poems that are kind of accessible in their language and that have kind of stories within them and narratives, but also are full of skill and complexity and multiple meanings. And if you let yourself dive into a Ross Gay poem, I think you'll come out on the other side thinking that was something that was worth doing.
0: Yeah, those are both definitely great recommendations. And to all our listeners, um, I just have to reiterate that William Blake is definitely a great poet to um, get into if you haven't read much poetry before. Um, It's a really great author. Um, So professor, um, would you be able to describe the process that you go through when writing your own poetry? Because um, to bring up one of your poems titled God Structure, um, the initial first two lines are a customer review for a bra that's on Uniqlo's website. And the reviewer said, it has a God structure. I think it will will resist a long time. And from that, it seems like you wrote a whole poem just based on those two weird review lines. So would you be able to just um, talk about a little of the process that you go through in general with poetry or um, if you'd like this one in specific.
1: Sure, I don't know if I have a general process, but that's a great poem to talk about in terms of a specific process. Uh, one that maybe I used intentionally or one that came to me, kind of happened to me. Um, I often think about Emily Dickinson's famous, famous statement that um, poetry Uh, says, tell the truth, but tell it slant, right? That Dickinson says, look, the wonderful things we can do through poetry is we can talk about the important stuff, but we may be able to say it or access it in indirect ways. So this poem was a poem that I wrote when I was thinking a lot about a really dear friend who has um, uh, a really terrible illness uh, that he's not successfully fighting. Um, And that, you know, this was, I was having a lot of feelings about this and wanted to write about it felt totally unable to write about it wasn't even sure if i had the right to write about it it's not my not my experience right it's just my friend who i care about so that was sort of percolating in the back of my head when i think for whatever reason i was like on the uniqlo website and i came across this review that has clearly just a typo or something um and i thought it was so funny and interesting and weird and reading that little piece of kind of messed up language maybe gave me a sidelong way to begin to think about the issues that are addressed in the poem which is a kind of it's sort of a theodicy poem right? it's a question about the poem that's asking questions about what god might be is there a god you know the classic why do horrible things happen to some of the best people and how do we manage that knowledge how do we get through the day um, while also being aware of, of great sorrow and great suffering. How do we hold together joy and pleasure? Um, the blackberries that I talked about in the poem or beautiful art or great architecture, things about the world that I love with things that I am really angry and upset about and can't do a thing about, right? So in that poem, these are all the thoughts and feelings I was having. I had no direct way to talk about them, but finding this stumbling upon this weird piece of language let me sort of tell it slant let me approach those topics by kind of sneaking into them um not thinking too much about what i was doing and i think that's sort of key to to the writing of any first draft of poems is not thinking too much about what you plan on or what you are trying to accomplish or what you're writing even but to just sort of let it go that was a poem i let it go and it let me talk about
0: the things that are important to me for sure and yeah that's definitely a great point about um, poetry and I'd say art in general um, you can really great uh, really create a lot of great work if you just let your subconscious um speak through your your hands or whoever you are creating that art and I think the background you've provided for this poem really adds a lot more meaning to it for me um just a really interesting poem and Now, if you'd be able to, uh, would you uh, read aloud your poem titled The Moon and describe the process that you took in writing
1: it? Sure. Um, Maybe I'll preface this poem a little bit by I'm gonna tell you first the process and then I'll read it. Um, This is a poem that came out of a writing prompt that a friend gave me. I was in a writing group on Zoom um, earlier this year. And somebody said, let's all write something, I'll I'll give us a prompt. And she said, here's the prompt, use this quote. If we can put a man on the moon, surely we can figure this out. If we can put a man on the moon is a, you know, it's a thing that people sometimes say, right? If we can get that done, we can get anything done. So the prompt was just use this quote. Um, and the way I chose to use it was I started turning the quote inside out and making every, every couplet of the poem a rearrangement of pretty much all the lines, all the words in that sentence. I think some of them I let it, I gave myself a little bit of leeway to add or delete the word, but I tried to stay pretty close to that original sentence and I kept turning the statement around to try and think about what it meant. And I would also say what came out of that, similar to the God structure, was this sense of being trapped in the pandemic, right? For me, that statement is a lot about How do we figure out this year? How do we figure out COVID? How do we figure out um, racism in our country? How do we we figure out uh, the political situation that we were in when I wrote this poem, which seemed like a, a scary one? So those were all the things going on in the background of this poem. And it was, again, a very random piece of language that was given to me by someone else that let me play with language and figure out how I was feeling. So here's the poem the moon. If we can put a man on the moon, surely we can figure this out. If the man puts out the moon, we can surely put that man figure out. The moon can cans on, man insures. We put out this figure, if. Put a figure on the can. We can out this. We can moon man on, surely. Out can the moon. Put a sure man. If we can, we figure this. We out it. The moon, the moon, can a man be sure, can we? Out, out. The man is a figure, the moon is a can, we put on the surely can, we out.
0: Thank you so much for reading that. And um, just to go back to your discussion before about it, um, in talking about how you wrote it during quarantine or during the pandemic, it really helps explain the poem to me, I think, because um, to me, at least what it's saying is, you start say like last March with some sense of reality, everything usually makes sense, but then you go on, it starts to get mixed up and you're kind of stuck with what you already have and you have to make do with with what you have. But then by the end, um, I really like just the last two words, we out, It's just a great conclusion to it, and um, hopefully as the ongoing pandemic starts to come to an end, we can all say, we out, just like this
1: poem. Uh, I hope so.
0: (laughs) So now I'd like to shift topics to discuss another one of your teaching interests, South Asian religions. Uh, So to start, I'd like to ask what sparked your interest in learning about the subject?
1: Sure, I sort of came to studying South Asia via poetry. Actually, I was um, in college uh, at Barnard and I took a class maybe in my sophomore year that was an intro to Hinduism class. I didn't know anything about South Asia or um, the Hindu tradition or South Asian religions. Uh, I just thought this is maybe something I should know about. So I took the course and in that course, we read uh, medieval devotional poetry from North India. And I was really fascinated by it um we also read poetry one of these poets that we were reading was a poet Mirabai, who was a 16th century woman poet saint and i was really interested in that of course because it wasn't that often in my education that i come across like pre-modern women poets or women poets in general i just hadn't run into that many so i thought this was really amazing um and i i got really interested in the poetry and then i felt that i didn't have enough context to read it properly. And so I thought, well, I'll just I'll learn a little bit more. So I got sucked into the rabbit hole of studying religion, partly because I wanted real context for reading literature that I was interested in. So I started studying, I started taking Hindi and Sanskrit, I went on study abroad to India the next year. And I was I was hooked after that and went on to get my PhD um, in South Asian religions.
0: And is there anything that you wish more people knew about South Asian religions?
1: I mean, I think I just wish more people in America had the opportunity to study different religious traditions. I think it's a really wonderful experience to learn about a religion that you didn't grow up in. It's also a great experience to learn about a a faith that you grew up in from an academic standpoint, right? To learn about its history, to learn about scholarly discourses around it, to understand that every single religion is actually really diverse. So if you practice a religion, you often have a very particular experience of it. Um and you often don't have an experience of anyone else's religion, right? So if you take any course in religious studies, whether it's in a tradition you know or don't, you will learn a great deal about something that a lot of people believe in, practice and has, has shaped their lives. So I just wish more people had the chance to take religious studies courses because I think It can enlarge your world. It can give you um, new forms of empathy for others and new ways of understanding and, and connecting across culture and time and space.
0: For sure. And especially right now, we all do need to find more ways to better connect with each other. We do. So Professor, I've found that you have several poems that I believe are set in the Indian state of Rajasthan. So I'd just like to ask. Um how do you go about writing poems like this? Do you have some connection to the places that are mentioned here? Uh, just why this location?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, Rajasthan is a place where I've spent a lot of time actually. Uh, when I very very first time that I went to India as an undergrad, as a junior in college, I went on study abroad um, to a program that was in Rajasthan and, So that was my first experience of India. I lived there for a semester and I traveled around North India but I was mostly in Rajasthan in the city of Jodhpur Um, and so it was a formative experience for me of having this encounter with um with this place that I'd never been to certainly and of of studying of getting to have a lived experience of a place that I had already been studying for a while and being really changed by that experience so I don't even know if I was writing poems at that time, or if I kept any of them. Um, All the poems from that collection, um, you're talking about my chapbook, Corner Shrine, which actually just came out in November. It's a whole uh, chapbook. It's a slim little volume of poems that are all about India in some way. Many of them are set in Rajasthan. They were all written long after the fact, and some of them are thinking back to that first time that I was in India, because it was an important time for me, I guess. And some of them came out of subsequent research trips where you know there were other times when I went back and lived in Rajasthan for a year studying or traveled around North India doing dissertation research. I've gone back many times, so I haven't been in a bunch of years now. Um, And so each time I went back, I had a different experience and some of those went straight into poems. And once I had this sort of body of work that was all kind of related to India, it felt like it needed to go together in a book, but there wasn't enough of it to make a big book. So I made it a chapbook.
0: And I'm not sure how much um, of an influence, or sorry, no, let me let me just say that again. Um, your time studying abroad there, you said you were unsure if you were writing poems at the time, but I wonder if in a way it's like, um, you were kind of writing them in your mind just over time, even if you weren't actually writing them down on paper. And over the times that you went back to India, um, it seems like it was already in your mind in some way, and you just had to transfer it to a medium that other people could see as well.
1: Yes, I think that's absolutely true. I think I was in a way, I mean, I was certainly recording those experiences in my mind and thinking about what they meant, which is really the first first stage of poetry for me, I think, is thinking about something that is maybe part of your everyday experience or maybe it's a special experience, but is is special in some way is different um, and that resonates and stays with you for whatever reason. So yes, I was certainly internalizing those experiences and mulling them over until I was ready. I think also most of the times that I was in India, I was focused on my academic work. I was focused on doing research, learning languages, Um, interviewing people, you know, visiting archives. I was, I've always have been in India primarily as a scholar and so I think the first bunch of trips I went there I didn't even think to write about it as a poet and later as I as I had more space for the poems it came back and felt like something that I had to write about
0: Sure. and to kind of come full circle we've talked about poetry, we've talked about South Asian religions and now I'd like to talk about your experience teaching so just to start what made you decide that you wanted to teach
1: well when you go get a PhD teaching is sort of like part of what you assume you'll do though it's true I didn't really think too much about teaching when I started my PhD I just wanted to keep studying the stuff that I was excited about and so I was only thinking about that but um, in the program I went to at UC Santa Barbara, there were lots of opportunities to teach, to work as a TA and eventually to work as an instructor. Um, so I actually got a lot of experience during grad school of teaching. I hated it when I started teaching. I, I was very intimidated because I just graduated from college myself. So my students were, some of my students were only a couple years younger than I was, I was their TA. I'm very petite. So I would have these students like towering over me and I was only, uh, I was fresh out of college. So I was maybe um, in my early twenties and I felt very unsure of what I was doing in the classroom. Um, But I'm really, I feel that I'm really lucky because I was forced to keep doing this thing that I was sort of uncomfortable with and I came to really love it and to feel that the complexities of teaching really helped me think in new ways and gave me new experiences and that I learn a lot in the classroom. And I really, I, now I love teaching and I, I miss it when I'm not doing it a little bit because I think getting to have those conversations with students, getting to be in the classroom setting where sure, I can make a plan for what I wanna cover, but stuff is gonna happen in the classroom that's unexpected. You know, students are gonna say something that I never thought of. Students are gonna have a reaction to our texts or our materials or our concepts that are totally different from what I have. And I really love that. So I didn't exactly decide to start teaching and I didn't like it at first, but I'm really glad I, I accidentally fell into it because I, I love doing it now.
0: And as a former student of yours, I'm also glad that um, you decided to stick with it and um, become a professor at CMC. Um, Thank you. So you have many roles, scholar, poet, mother, wife, just to name a few. How do you balance your time filling these different roles?
1: Oh, I don't balance it at all. It's, it's a disaster. <laughs> I mean, well, especially in this year of the pandemic, time has just sort of Evaporated so I used to say that I would balance those my time in those different roles by trying to really carefully protect time for different activities to have. Time that I would protect for teaching and teaching related work for scholarship work for poetry work for family time. Um, I think what i've done in the past was just do my best to try and allot time to those different worlds as best I could and to accept the fact that there's just never enough time to do all the things as much or as well as I would like to, and to be okay with that. That's just a necessary part of all the things that I do. I would say this year, you know, it's been totally different um, because my kids have been home now for a year. I've been doing school from home over Zoom. My my husband and I are both CMC professors. So we've both been teaching remotely, managing Zoom school and trying to fit the other things that we do into our spare time. and most of that has just been about accepting that we will get even less done. I just haven't, I, the one thing that has happened, I would say this year that's been interesting is that I've had more time for poetry because I can I can squeeze a poem into a little space of time. Whereas I haven't had a lot of time to work on my scholarly book that I'm working on. I have an academic book that I'm writing, um, about religious autobiography. And it's been really hard to find the, the larger blocks of time that I really need to sit with those materials and do that larger piece of writing. So that one, it's a little bit on hold. That's okay. It'll get there eventually.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, at least you are making use of the time you do have to continue to write poems. Um, and going off of that, do you think there's Song, if any, silver linings of the ongoing virtual learning environment.
1: I mean, I do think there are real silver linings. I think we've all had to learn a lot of new skills, technology skills that we didn't have before, and that many of us in uh, in my generation and the generation above mine were reluctant, if not outright refusing, to learn those new skills. Right. So, I think that's really good. We've all been forced to do that, and I do think virtual learning and virtual, you know, for me also virtual events like poetry readings and workshops and conferences, you know, academic conferences took place online this year. One silver lining really has been access I you know, people who might not have been able to attend all those events for reasons of finances, free time, family obligations, disability, you know, all kinds of other stuff people have been able to connect to communities and attend events and have experiences that I think they couldn't before. I've certainly gone to lots more lectures, conferences, poetry readings than I normally would have time for because I can squeeze them into a spare moment and attend from my living room. So I think there has been a silver lining of access. There's been a silver lining of learning new skills. I certainly miss teaching in the classroom and I I can't imagine how hard it is for you students to have to have had this year without having the on-campus experience, I, I am sure it's really, really difficult, um, but I do think, you know, there, hopefully we can return in person and then also bring some of those those skills with us. One thing that I've done this year that's been great is I started using Calendly to book all my appointments and it's been so much easier. It's really cut down on endless exchange of emails, but also it means I'm actually available much more to students instead of setting like two office hours a week and saying these are the office hours I will be here and you'll have to like talk to me to find another place. I have put my calendar hours like all over the week and there are lots of them far more than two hours it's much easier for students to book them and it's much easier for me to pop in online and and do a quick meeting with students so that too it feels like. I've been able to be much more accessible to my students than I actually was even when I was on campus. And that's something I think I will keep doing. I'm going to keep having Calendly and I might keep doing some virtual office hours just to be more available.
0: Yeah, I mean, those are both definitely great things that um, hopefully continue once we are all back on campus. And um, just one more thing about that. I know uh, the Athenaeum has had a lot of or rather all of the speakers this year have been virtual. But I think um, the Athenaeum will definitely benefit from more people knowing how to use Zoom, because I think we can get even more interesting speakers as time goes on. Once we're on campus, we can have in-person events, but we can also have virtual ones still. So just in closing, I have um, just two questions that I think are good to help students get to know you just a bit better so is there a single book or any work of art for that matter that has influenced you greatly in your personal life or your professional career?
1: Um, That's a very hard question to answer because there are so many. Um, One that I will say is I'm gonna say this new book that I've been reading this year and that I taught to students in the fall called Beholding by the poet Ross Gay who I've already mentioned. I think that's just a terrific new book of poetry. It's a long epic poem. It's about basketball. And as someone who doesn't really know anything about basketball or really care about basketball, it doesn't matter at all. It's like immensely compelling and um, feels to me like a new way of thinking in poetry that has been really exciting for me to have this year to read and think about. So I recommend Beholding Highly.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a great book. I really enjoyed reading it. And I recommend it to all of our listeners as well. And also, is there a song, album, or artist that you would like to recommend to our listeners?
1: I recommend that everybody go and listen to, I'm going to recommend a super old, non-contemporary Uh, not new and exciting artist, but one that maybe many people are not listening to anymore. Everyone should go and listen to Billie Holiday, great jazz singer of the early 20th century. Um, Even if you don't like jazz, even if you're not that interested in, I don't know, like lady singers, um, I think she's one of the most amazing American artists we have and everyone should listen to Billie.
0: For sure. And jazz is always the best recommendation. <laughs> so unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Professor Martinez, for joining us.
1: Thanks, Nathan, so much. It's been lovely to talk to you and uh, and take care.
0: Thank you. And to all our listeners, I'll see you in the next episode of Free Food for Thought.